0: what happened with when... let's start um, before we begin David oh. yes. can you introduce yourself it's a... Hello. I'm David <laughs> can we just quickly go around the room just say your name without going into a lot of I know that's going to be hard for some of you
1: oh my
0: God. Yes. <laughs> um, can you just introduce yourself because we've got a new, I'm so glad... By the way, I'm so glad you're here. It's just good to have a newcomer. Let me warn you before we get going. When you come to this class, you want to pick your tables. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just tell you that ahead in advance. Where
2: are you? My <laughs> name is Marcy, and he says I'm the class troublemaker. Oh. That's yeah. that. <laughs> one, of, one of
0: several. <laughs> okay. Can you just introduce yourselves to more. David? So... <laughs> Start...
2: I'm Carl. I didn't <laughs> meet Carl. <laughs> oh now you but, know But it finds him. <laughs> it finds him, right? <laughs> I'm Mary. Millie.
0: Gay.
3: Gita. Carolyn. Carl. Um Chester? We call me Chester.
0: Okay. <laughs> Mary. <laughs> Joe. <laughs> and that's Bob and Marcy, if you didn't get them. Suzanne. And I'm Suzanne. Um, it's good to have you. Good yes. to have you. I was surprised. How'd, how'd you got this from the SoundCloud. From Who'd the bulletin. T- oh, oh, yeah. I didn't know that we were in the bulletin still. <laughs> <ahead>. mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to ask Father to put out a new bulletin because we're about ready to finish. A um, couple of things <coughs> before we start. Last chance. For only <laughs>
1: 12 for sessions left. Is that right? I don't, I don't know. I haven't counted, but I don't know. 16. <laughs> Whatever at it is, that's, that's at, what he counted. Yeah, yeah.
0: Only at 16 least. sessions left. <laughs> at least 24. Get him now! He sounds like a seal for the dagger. They should hire you. <laughs> Before we start, um, I hope everybody had a Merry Christmas, and I wish you all a, a Happy New Year, and um, I know there are all sorts of burdens, and we're, we're too far deep into ourselves not to know that right now, but whatever burdens we have, the, the, our faith is to be glad, God's always at work, so I hope whatever good everybody had during the Christmas season carries through the year for everybody. Okay? Um, a quick word before we start. Um, I expect to finish letter tonight. I know we don't, I'm not always successful at doing that, but I, I really want to finish this because we um, we spent a good amount of time on it. We're going to do Murder of the Cathedral, and I, I I want to say, to get ready for Scarlet, I'm going to go back to something in the hopes that it will help everybody. And it, it it's going to be a difficult, Bit of work because it's going to involve abstractions, and you know how guarded I am about those. I think. Anyway, we're going to do "Murder in the Cathedral" starting next week, um, and I'd like to divide "Murder in the Cathedral" into um, maybe three weeks. I'm not sure. I mean, Chester the counter here, but it's divided into two sections. There's a there's a separation between the two an interlude, it's not long at all, it's just not a long play. Um, And I haven't read it, these other works, I haven't read it in 25 years, and I was blown away by it. It's just so much heavier than I realized. So what I'd like to do is plan to do, to allow two weeks for the first part, because my sense is it's gonna present some difficulties to people. There's nothing difficult in the vocabulary, but the concepts he's dealing with are not easy at all. Um, there's a sense of fate, of a providential pattern at work in man's life that he can't escape. Um, it's going to it's going to seem like Calvin's predestination. It's not. It's not at all. But it it's um, it just <clears throat> takes some thinking, and I don't want to rush through it. So I'm going to allow for two weeks, um, and then a third week on the last sections because if 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 we take time on the first section, I'm hoping the concepts that we have to deal with will get a little bit easier, and so we won't have to take as much time on the third section, okay? It's an extraordinary play. Extraordinary. Um, Sorry? The The, the murder in the cathedral. Here, this is the. Here, there.
2: It's like this.
0: I think we have some copies. Okay. So. and I'd, I, if you can, I'd like everybody to get this copy because when I go through it, I'll be referring to page numbers here. That's what we've been doing all along.
3: There are two copies here.
0: Who would like a copy? I haven't written it out of order. David, do you need one? Yes, yeah. go please. Let Miriam I'm gonna and let share. I'm going to let you guys share yeah. one okay. Yeah, that's fine. Thank you. Um, and. And then we do um, Dostoevsky's Brothers, and we're done. Um, I've thought about doing
2: the
0: <coughs> I thought about doing I thought <laughs> about, one of you is enough, two of you, stop. Um, I thought about doing Eliot's The Wasteland, which is a long lyric, but we'll talk about it. I'll talk with you guys later. But at this point, we're finishing up. We're going to do Murder. Elliot's Murder in the Cathedral, and Dostoevsky's um, Brother's Camera It's a Russian novel, it's it's long, it's it's uh, very Christian, it's very moving, very modern, so in my mind, it's a good way to close. Uh, How
3: many weeks do you think we'll spend on that one? What? Mm-hmm. On Brothers?
0: Mm-hmm. What'd you say? 700. 700
3: <laughs> it's like
0: 800 pages. It's really thick. A month, four weeks, I don't know. Four weeks, roughly four weeks. Something. Six. So. <laughs> Um, I think, I think that's it. Um, had it
3: for years, in the David, just I so you know, know
0: we've been doing this, I think, for about four years now, maybe five, or four anyway. Um, and that, actually, this is going to go to what would've been my opening point. Years ago, Jared Zimmerman, who was the um, director of adult catechesis here, was starting up a literature group um with the mind of just reading classics you know that it's a good thing to read and he happened to be doing Moby dick and i had strong feelings about dealing with works like that as classics because when you name them classics and you're going to read a literature group you're reading dead works moby dick to me is one of the great prophetic works in all of literature in american literature so I talked with him about it and he turned the class over to me and we've been doing it since. So in all the works that we've been doing, the the purpose is to try to find Christ outside of church in our ordinary life. So we've been dealing with works in which um, God is at work in some way, even if he's not visible. So the whole point of this class has been to find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him outside of mass. Every work has had that, and it's not always easy to see. I mean, these artists aren't showing Christ in the picture or concretely in the world. Um, We've been doing it for um, four years. We went back to the ancient epics. Um, I aligned them up uh, with the prophetic writings to show amazing parallels that that, um, if you look at the prophetic writings under prophecy, Revelation, you see that God calls Abraham out, and then he does all of this work to form the twelve tribes. And there's a founding going on. The, the, new, the new Jerusalem or the, yeah, the, the, the promised land. David is a new king, the Messiah, or a king preparing for a new a, a Messiah, a founder who would refound, who would realize all these prophecies. When you line up all the prophecy or the epics, the literature tradition, you find an amazing thing that every one of them has to do with the refounding. Something's wrong with the people and a hero is called out with a divinely appointed task to do something the other people can't do and, and that they don't understand. So an amazing way they line up and every one of those ancient epics ends with a, a Perusia action, Perusia, the, the second coming. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid all end with the return of the king. It's like the Fellowship, if any of you, you know, read the Fellowship, Tolkien's work. You know that it's about the return of the king. So every one of those works is in some ways a foreshadowing, a foretelling of what's to come. How they could have done that to me is amazing, but they all did it. So when you put Early works together, you see that they line up in amazing ways, and then we went from the ancient world to Shakespeare, to the modern world, um, Melville, C.S. Lewis, and some other people. And I got Dante. You know, well, Dante was in the he was the Christian epic writer who sort of fulfilled that whole epic tradition. Um, we just went back to uh, to Hawthorne, and I'm reading him now, and. Um, I'm sorry that we didn't do Hawthorne and Melville together because they would have lined up amazingly. Um, but anyway, we're just finishing up Hawthorne. We we went through the Renaissance Shakespeare. We did Othello and some other people, and we'll go to T.S. Eliot's "Murder in the Cathedral," and then we'll end with Dostoevsky. So it's bringing it's bringing together to an end the work that we've been doing for four years. It's to me, it's amazing you're all still around. Anyway, glad to have you. Um, I hope hope to see you the next couple of weeks. Um, I'm gonna read the poem, but before we do, let's take a minute for prayer. Did you start? They're started, Doc. Um, Any any prayer requests tonight? Pray for the leaders of this country and around the world. (laughs) Let's do that because our political leaders need prayers, all of them.
2: Yeah, pray for peace. Yeah,
0: everywhere. Um, more, more than, you've heard this a lot from me. When you, We can't read these works without realizing something really important. We, what we've seen over and over again, particularly in Dante, somebody like Dante, uh, but it's here in Hawthorne, it's in almost every great book we've read. We see the way in which people can misuse reason over and over and over again. We've been talking about the way in which people read and don't read very well. It's, it's, a, it's a theme that's run through every work. People think they see things and, as a matter of fact, they don't. The way in which people use reason so often depends on the nature of their wills, whether they have good wills or not. If they have virtuous wills, if they're really good people, what will be expressed in their reason, their powers of intelligence, will be virtuous. And I'm trusting everybody knows where I'm going right now because if you listen to the political debates today, one of the it's hard to detect a voice of virtue they're all using reason they're all using reason condemning justifying excusing you know you can go on and on and on what you hear is an intellect a mind that's being used to express anything but virtuous feelings so one of the one of the great concerns that i've had here is Remember that the, the, one of the, I said it from Dante, but it's, we've learned it everywhere, that the great task we have, according to our faith, is to learn to order our feelings, our emotions. Because the, the heart is what makes us most human. In our heads we're angels. In our bellies we're beasts. It's in our heart. This is Hawthorne's central theme. It's only in our hearts that we can learn to love another. Thought won't do it. We can argue forever. If we don't learn to love and see people through eyes of love, we're in trouble. So I'm not going to just pray for peace. (laughs) I'm going to pray that our political leaders have some help in taking seriously how important it is to become virtuous, to become good people. So whatever they do with their minds will reflect better wills. Because we're we're in utopian ideals, um, um, pandering. We, all, we saw it all in Dante, yeah? I mean, political leaders are doing anything they can to play to people or... Anyway, so just so you know, I'll pray for peace, but... I'm so glad that you... but since we're praying for leaders, I'm going to add that prayer and I hope everybody understands why I'm including that. Okay. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, I want to offer a special thanksgiving to see everybody again. Mm. Hard for me to say this to a group that I always make fun of. I'm glad to see everybody again. Genuinely glad to see everybody again. Let a blessing be upon the work that we do together. Um, thank you for the life um, that, uh, we have from you and the gift of yourself so often in the Mass. Strengthen us um, to love more like you, to be more like you. Um, to take your life into us the way we do in communion and make it living in our own lives. Um, Help us to become better in our hearts to love, um, to help use our minds so that we're more able to express that love, to put away the selfishness that so often drives us um, to come closer to you. Um, Help us to do that, uh, particularly in the work that we are doing together with these poets, what they're teaching us. Ask a best blessing on our political leaders. Um, um, there are great fights. Um, there's a great civil war going on in our country right now. Um, the, the sides are so divided. Um, there's something to be said for both sides. Um, help the people who are elected to represent us um, to take the best of us um, to themselves. And do what you can to help our political leaders um, take more seriously how important it is to become virtuous, um, to learn to correct themselves um, and to to bring corrected selves to their work with us. Um, I ask a blessing on um, all that we're doing, um, and we know that there are sorrows that so many of us carry in our, particularly in our families and close ones. I ask a special grace for and two of our sons, Christopher and Thomas, um, um, draw them close to you, help them in the struggle that they're having. Let that be so for any of us here who, um, who are bearing burdens involving loved ones. Um, in all of this, um, help us to take seriously that you've asked us to be glad. Um, that's our faith, um, not a reason. Um, Faith means having faith in something when there's no reason to have it. So strengthen us in our faith so that in the midst of our trials, we can find within us your spirit to be glad, to be thankful. Help us to take that seriously. Let a blessing be upon us in our work. Help us to be open to these poets and to take what we learn into the world and make it living in our own lives. We offer these prayers in your name. Can you turn um, to the prayer or the uh, poem? I think you know, I'm, I'm not used to sitting down, and I'm sorry to do that. I'm always, but I've been having troubles with my back and my knee, and it's just really hard to stand, so pardon me. Do you all had that poem during the I thought this would be appropriate. Let me just highlight one thing, and then I'm, I'm not going to take any time with it except to read it. It's an appropriate time because it's epiphany, and it's so the timing's really good. Just keep this on your mind when I read it. Remember, po- Eliot was a poet laureate in the 20th century. I think he's the greatest poet of the 20th century. Um, some of you have done the four quartets. I'm seriously thinking about doing the four quartets mm-hmm. after this, but I it depends on how many dark looks I get here. Because um, you know, those of you who did it, it's not, it's not, it's not an easy poem. Uh, it's not an easy poem at all, but anyway, he's the greatest poet of the 20th century, and when you read him, you discover that he had underwent a conversion in the middle of his life and, and returned to a Christian faith that he'd left when he was a book earlier in his life. And the whole intellectual world turned on him. They loved him until he <laughs> converted, and then converted um, and then didn't like him so much. But he was a poet laureate, and he wrote the Four Quartets and, t- and towards the end of his life, murder the cathedral. It's a, it's a wonderful book, we'll do it next week. The Journey of the Magi is one of a group of poems that have to deal explicitly with Christian themes. In this case, it's the Epiphany, so it's appropriate because we're in, you know, we're in the Epiphany season. I'm not gonna say anything, you'll see the relevance because what he's doing is, is bringing that ancient trip into our time so that he's allowing us to participate in it in ourselves so that we don't stick it in the past done and over. We're supposed to relive these things. We're supposed to be keeping them alive. So he's doing that here in this poem, okay? Just pay attention to the way he connects birth and death, okay? Just have, keep that in your mind when we read it, because it's going to be a focus of the poem, okay? TSLA, the Journey of the Magi. The cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey, and such a long journey, the ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter, the camels galled, sore-footed, or factory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times when we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces, and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Because once you're in the middle of the pain, (coughs) you realize how spoiled you get from your good times silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women, and the night fires going out, the lack of shelters and the cities dirty, and the towns unfriendly and the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears saying, that this was all folly. Then at dawn we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and water mill beating the darkness, and three trees on the low sky. I hope you're all hearing three crosses here. Three trees on the low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, Six hands had an open door dicing for pieces of silver and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information, and so we continued and arrived at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place. It was, you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again, but set down, set this down, this, Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly, we had evidence, and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here, in the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods, I should be glad. I should be glad of another death. I'm taking for granted, everybody's seen that you can't see that birth without knowing the crucifixions in it.
1: Yeah.
0: Once you've had that experience, can you go back to the old world? Can you go back to doing things the way you were doing them? Um, the journey of the Magi. Okay. okay, Hawthorne, let's see, before we start, i want to just say a personal word right here. You, I, you know the story, we're only doing Hawthorne um, because Suzanne got the better of me. <laughs> <laughs> we were not going to do it. It
3: uh, doesn't happen often.
0: Oh, stop. (laughs) Confession for that one. Um, You've already heard this. I had no interest in doing Hawthorne, none. I did him for my dissertation, 40 years ago, whenever it was. I thought I knew Hawthorne. I haven't touched him. I I mean, short stories I've done in classes, but I haven't done Scarlet Letter in (coughs) several years. Just so you know, I read it this time and realized I didn't understand it at all. I was blown away. I mean, I, the things that I saw this time, there's no way I could have seen them 40 years ago. Just none. Just none. Just none. Um, and I'm so glad that we're doing it. Um, not only for Hawthorne, but because of um, the light it throws. I hope it will throw. Time, it's going to be a risky night tonight, because I'm going to take some risks here. But um, Anyway, I was, I was so glad because of the light it threw on our Catholic faith. I'm going to to end the class with what I hope are some tough questions. Um, They were really revealing for me when I thought about it. And they're the kinds of questions I could have never asked 40 years ago, just never. So um, the second personal thing is this. Um, Those of you who were here when we did Melville, you know that um, Melville was doing everything he can to unmask (coughs) that Protestant northern world that Northern Protestant world. Um, Ishmael was an outcast, He um, he's ready to kill somebody when the, when the quest starts, and you know that he was the one who gave his voice the greatest intensity when Ahab gathered all the, soldiers, the sailors around him and encouraged them to join him on that quest, and that quest was a vengeance quest. Everybody joined Ahab because every one of those soldiers suffered from wounds, every one of them. We all want to get back. We've all been wounded. Every one of us. There's no way we're going to grow up in the world and not be wounded. Ahab wanted to get back at that whale, and he appealed to everybody's sense of injustice. There was a wrong to be answered. And what we learn in that story is that one of the the deep things that he's trying to shed himself of is this sense of um, predestination. That um, there seems to be this evil in the world... Uh, behind the world, he calls it. He wants to strike through the mask to get at that evil because he, he doesn't believe that that whale could have done that just on its own instinctively. It's That whale is an image of some malice in the world. It's, it's very Medicaean, very Medicaean, that there's this evil that people have to deal with. Ishmael joins that quest, and you know that very gradually he dissociates himself from it. There's that scene where he's um, squishing squid. You remember, and he's mixing hands with the other sailors and and feeling this tenderness. And he begins to be overcome by this love, and it dissociates him from this quest. And he's the only one who survives. You know, at the end, everybody else is killed. He's the only one that survives. So there are three or four peripetias, the turns that Ishmael undergoes. Um, And um, what you see in Ishmael is this man who who started this quest in a spirit of bitterness, who's ready to shoot people and bring up funeral lines, if you remember the book, he was so disenchanted with the world. He's the one to survive, and he's the one to come back to tell the story. He's a Jonah figure. He survives the whale. And the, the identity between Ishmael and Jonah is made clear in the opening when he goes to Father Mapple's sermon, and the, story, or the sermon is about what? Jonah. Uh, first thing Ishmael does is go on board, and he's cheated by the captain just the way Jonah was. So he's a Jonah figure going through this whole thing, but the amazing transformation that he undergoes is this. Instead of seeing the world as um, depraved and darkened, the way the Reformation thinkers did, that the fall was complete, that man's depraved, instead of seeing this depravity everywhere in nature, he finds this goodness, the analogies to being. So there's nothing that he looks at that doesn't give him the delight of seeing this goodness everywhere, and he makes it available to us in all those chapters we went through it. So Melville is doing everything he can to escape that that dark side of the northern Protestant world. Hawthorne's doing the same thing. Okay, and one of the questions that I'm going to ask later is: Does he do it? Does he get free? Because you know that he he takes Melville is in the middle of the 19th century. That's a quest that takes place then. Hawthorne's taking us back to the. Founding to the 16th century. We're back at 1640, roughly, somewhere in there. So he's taking us back to the founding generation to look at the Puritan founding. And, as I suggested, he's going back to unmask it to show the, the, some of the problems with it. And I suggested that, like the epic poets, he was enacting a refounding. That he's doing something to bring to that original Puritan founding that the Puritan founding didn't have. So that's where we're going. I mean, that's the question I'm going to ask everybody. Does he do it? What, what's the answer to this darkness that these Puritans bring to this, you know, this problem that we encountered in the beginning? Okay? So I, I really want to spend... I want to leave enough time so that at the end, we, we have a chance to compare what's going on with what Hawthorne's doing with our own faith. How, how would a Catholic deal with sin and confession? I I, I don't want that to get in the way. Our first task is to understand this book, what Hawthorne's doing. But once we get to the end, I've I've got these other questions that I want to put to everybody, okay? So. um, Okay. Um, Okay. Okay, this is gonna be a little bit risky. We've done this in, Those of you who've done Dante will know this, but you know that this founding took place on the basis of faith, that faith was what governed this group of people having the strength to turn away from their family, their home, their possessions, to risk a sea, an ocean, put everything at risk and come here to found a city so that they could practice their religious beliefs. I want to just recall something to everybody, if I can. You remember when we did Dante and Milton, and Milton, um, that um, faith is a knowledge. This is from Paul faith is a knowledge of certain things, they're real. We can't grasp them with our intellects. They're beyond the grasp of our senses. They're beyond the grasp of our intellects. We can understand them intellectually, conceptually, but we can't see them immediately. We're not in the presence of God, okay? I want to recall this notion for you to, to try to make this clear. Those of you who did Dante will remember this. Sorry. You know that the source of everything for us as Catholics, as Christians—any, well, not all Christians, because some Christians don't believe this—but um, most Christians do, and we do—that the source of reality, the source of everything that we know, is the Trinity. Okay, we we understand the Trinity to be one God. There's only one God. It's not. Um, there's not a. There's not numerous. There's not a. There's not multiple gods. There's one God. But that one God takes three forms, three persons. We've gone through this again and again, but remember, the Father, who's the principle of everything, who was uncreated, there was nothing there before him, he's being itself, that's his identity, he says, I am, that am. He's being. There's nothing before him, nothing after. He is. His conception of himself, his knowledge of himself, the concept of himself to himself is the Son. He's begotten. That means the Son's co-eternal. He's not created, he's not made like human beings. He's not a subordinate, he's not inferior to the Father, he's not inferior to the Father. He's one with him. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and Son. The love between them is the Holy Spirit, okay? So we believe in a trinity of persons. So our our God is not singular. It's not the good of Islam. It's not the God of Islam. It's not the God of Judaism. Because they believe God is isolated. It's just one. If we're made in His image, we're not we were not meant to be isolated. Individuals. Our nature is communal. It's reciprocal. We We were meant to love and be loved. If we're made in His image, that's in our nature. To be alone, to not be loved, is a sad thing. It's not a good thing for most of us. I'm trusting all of us have had experiences with that. Yeah, everybody's okay so far, right? I mean, this is just old stuff. This is what St. Thomas says of that being, that original state of being. Um, Among created things, this is St. Thomas, one is part of two and two of three, right? Marcy and I are here together um, she's one and I'm another um, I think we're united in love I think we are we' like still two or or otherwise we couldn't love one another we can only love because she's different from me and I'm so Yeah. Huh. one is a part of two and if Bob enters into it then one of us is part of three and if Suzanne comes in one of okay that's just that's that's a that's a a piece of realism having to do with the nature of us as creatures, with bodies. (laughs) It's like one bird and one house or two birds or, okay? So among created things, one is a part of two, two of three, as one man is a part of two men, and two men of three, but not so for God, for the Father is as much as the whole of the Trinity, quia tantus est pater quanta tota, Trinitas, the Father is the same magnitude as the whole trinity. So, two of the persons are not greater than a third. And one is not less. They are all one with each other. I hope that's clear. Because that's a metaphysical concept. It's so beyond what we ordinarily think of in material terms, right, earthly terms. Because it's one in being. So two of them doesn't equal more than one in that state. They're one with each other, complete. That's why we say one God, one being. Okay. I'm, I'm trusting there may be questions. Don't ask them. Because <laughs> we can't go there. This is not a class of metaphysics. I just want you all to remember that from Dante. Remember, in the Purgatorio what was happening in the Purgatory and Dante is we were trying to recall what we had once had and lost. That's why memory was so important. We were trying to get back to God and our Trinitarian nature. That's why love is so important. But when we love each other we're approaching Him. Okay? So, an act of... Here's, here's where I'm going. An act of faith according to us, an act of faith um, involves us in this being can we grasp it with our minds? Conceptually, I mean, Thomas has given a notion about it. Can we see it immediately? No, not unless we're mystics, because some mystics have presumably had that experience. Paul did. Um, uh, it's beyond us. An act of faith means that, that we, we, we know the truth of that, it's real. Okay? Can you prove it with reason? No, absolutely not. If you try to prove it, what's the problem with trying to prove it with reason? Because if you disprove it, what happens to our faith? Gone. Yeah? It's beyond our powers of reason. Okay? Uh, So, faith, here's where I'm going. Faith, for us, implies an obedience. How powerful, how strong is that? To to give our faith to something calls for everything obedience. Mary said. Mary's is the exemplar. Yes. Did she know what was going to happen? Did she know what she's getting into? If it all depended on her reason, her powers of reason, she would have said, "Hold on, wait a minute." Yeah, slow down. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Faith. Faith. That's why Saint Thomas said a peasant woman with faith is is probably in better shape than a woman who's an intellectual who thinks she knows it all. Or a man, just, but I'm thinking of Mary primarily, yeah. Okay, that's faith. So the church is always defending the deposit of faith, that wholeness. And if humans are made in the image of God, then we have that dignity to defend. Wherever that dignity is threatened, the church takes a stand against it. That's why the Catholic Church is so often looked at as full of rules. Yeah. Because if it doesn't, it's going to enable, it's just going to, it's going to let people do whatever they want, or whatever they think is right. <coughs> is everybody okay? I want to be careful here. In the 16th century, when the Reformation thinkers be- began to take a different stance, I'm thinking primarily right now of Henry VIII, what he did was take that faith, which asks an, an obedience, and relates him to a larger order of reality that he can't just change to fit his will, what he did was relativize it. What he brought it down to human terms. Could have been the English church. Could have been the Orthodox church. Could have been any Presbyterians, method. It doesn't matter. <coughs> what it did was undermine that faith and make it subject to rationalizing powers. That's why when we've talked about this before, you've heard me say... There's a tendency to rationalize faith in the Reformation. It's a rationalized kind. It brings it down. And I gave you the example with Christ in the, in the Bread of Life discourses. Remember in the, the Copernican Temple before the Last Supper? He's there with his disciples and he says, "Unless you eat of this bread, unless you... Mm-hmm. Half the disciples walked away. Because to the Jews, that's the last thing you could do. Drink blood? They were so offended by it. It so went against everything they believed. Half the disciples gone. It didn't fit their minds.
3: Literal. They were more literal.
0: They thought it in a literal sense. Yeah. Okay. So remember that Reformation problem with faith is behind us. I just want everybody to hold on to that. Even even though it's asking us to stand on on the threshold of a mystery. That's where we are. The most important thing for me right now, just as a background, is remember, if that faith is real... And it's the whole church; it can't be relativized. People can't make it whatever they want. It implies an obedience, um, and that that means at some point we're going. I mean, this is where we're going with um, Thomas in Murder of the Cathedral. It's it's stunning for me. I'm just reading it for the first time in four years, and I'm I'm like Scarlett. Leonard. I'm being stunned by it. Thomas is facing a martyrdom, and he knows it. He knows it. When you read this, the Murder of the Cathedral. Be aware of the tempter, and be aware of the priests, God, be aware of the priests and the tempters. Listen to their arguments to, to really appreciate what he's facing, because all of the arguments are the arguments in favor of everything that we value in this world that sometimes keeps us from doing what we should do. Is everybody okay? Sorry for that. I'm blown away by this stuff, Sorry. Is everybody okay? You're following? Okay. So, the, the, because of the persecutions in England and Scotland and all the other world, you know, the, what was going on, particularly between the Presbyterians and the, um, and the Anglicans, remember, we, and the others, we talked about this when we did Milton and Dante, um, they escaped, they fled England to the Netherlands to found... A community so that they could practice their faith as they believed it. It led to America. That's why we've got the First Amendment. Because um, people should not be forced by a political ruler to practice whatever faith he happens to believe is the right one. I mean, we, we, the whole, from the Renaissance or from the, Reforma- from the Reformation, from what Henry did on up to Milton's time, you know that that was the fundamental, I mean, England was torn apart by religious battles. We've gone through it all. So, the the people the pure the the people most persecuted were the Puritans and the Catholics. Um, the Puritans went north to the Netherlands and things didn't work out there, and they came to America. So what what Hawthorne's doing is going back to that founding, where a group of people came in order to practice their faith, sola fidea. That was the principle <coughs> in which they all united together. Now, what we know when the when the story opens is that there's a problem. Because you remember, Anne Hutchinson um, believed that through her faith, because she was related to the Holy Spirit, she was um, not accountable to any of the laws of the rest of the Puritan community. They ostracized her, they sent her away. Hawthorne calls her Saint, sainted, Anne Hutchinson. The majority of the people believed that faith was their guiding principle, but the evidence of that faith was their conformity to the practices of the church. So immediately you've got a problem with conformity. The the sign of your election is that you're doing what everybody thinks you should be doing to be saved. So what it did was create this black-white world, the saved and the damned. That's strictly from Calvin, and and so many of the Reformation thinkers, I mean, according to them, we're depraved anyway, unless we're saved by God's grace. So, implied in this background is that schism, already, when they come. And it's important to just keep in mind the similarities between Hester and Anne Hutchinson, because she's put outside of that community. Everybody in the community thinks they're saved, the, the, the arrogance of it is, they think they they think they can read the inside of another human person's soul, and that she's damned. Everything about this book is working to show us they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, you know? I mean, he shows us again and again. In the opening scene, you've got these four women condemning Hester, except for that. It's really interesting. Except for that one woman who's a child. Remember, the the woman says, "If I had my way, I'd put a brand on her head." Mm-hmm. And the, the young woman says um, something to the effect that the mark on her the mark on her heart is already deep enough. It's clear that 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 woman knows Hester through her heart, and the other women do not. And interesting at the end of the at the end of the story, when the when the town has the gathering at the end, all those matrons are there except for that young woman. She's dead. I think it's Hawthor- Hawthorne's way of saying, the fragile, most delicate, are often the ones that don't survive. And it's all these other hardy ones that, you know. Um, she's dead. You know, I, d- I don't remember knowing anything about her body, but I mean, her baby, but. So Hawthorne's dealing with this fundamental problem that you've got a, a, a group, absolutely dedicated Christ, living on the basis of faith, but divided in a black-white kind of mentality. They're among the saved, which means they think they know what goes on in the other person's heart, and everything Hawthorne does is to show that they couldn't be more wrong. Because we're the ones that can see into Hester, and even more importantly, what's more important? We can see into Dimmesdale. They all think he's sainted. They all think he's a saint. In Some ways he's worse than Hester, truthfully. I mean, she's bearing it, he's not. So Hawthorne's showing us that we should be careful so, you know, this, this question that I'm, that I'm raising in the beginning if there's a refounding, like Homer with the Iliad or Virgil with the Aeneid, um, is Hawthorne bringing something to the way that he tells this story? Remember, it's inauguration day at the end. It's a new year, a new man is ruling. <clears throat> and I hope everybody's hearing that. What's this new man? What is Hawthorne bringing to this community that this community needs to answer this problem? Is everybody okay? That's where we were. And I just want to recall one thing and then we'll, I'll I'll get to the end of the book, I'll do a quick summary and then I want to get to these questions. Remember that the crisis in the middle section, um, the crisis in the middle section was that scene when um, Chillingworth has become Dimmesdale's doc physician, he moves in, and we know from that opening scene, there's two things here, the natural man and what happens with uh, Chillingworth and Dimsdale. We know from that interview scene earlier that Hester will not confess the name of the father, Pearl's father, and Chillingworth says he will find that man. He moves in not because he suspects Dimsdale. He's just he's a physician. He wants to help him. Um, but in that in that scene where the two of them meet, Chillingworth puts this question to Dimsey and says, have you told me everything? I'm just reviewing what we did last week. Have you told me everything? Because a physician can't really do his work unless he knows everything about you. And his claim is he can cure the soul of a man. He's a physician. Yeah? <laughs> He's a physician. Um... And you remember the issue we went over. It, it goes back to that, that scripture passage in, in um, the gospel where Christ says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees when he's going to cure that man. He says, which is easier, to heal this man or forgive his sins? And the Jews are shocked because by that they know he's claiming to be God because only only God can forgive a sin. Now hold on to that in this book. Only God can forgive a sin. Dimmesdale knows that. So when Chillingworth says, in presumption, that he thinks he can cure, he can forgive, he can, he can heal a man's soul, Dimsdale is outraged, absolutely outraged. And he gets angry and leaves. And he regrets it later, I don't think he should, but he regrets it later, and then Chillingworth comes in, to remember, when Dimsdale's asleep, opens the shirt, and sees the, presumably, the Scarlet Letter. And it's at that point that he knows that Dimsdale's the father, and it's at that point the vengeance that he's wanted all along becomes active. And it's from that point on that Dimzhu gets weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. It's like um, guilt eating away at his soul. So the problem at the center of the book is there is this strict law in the Puritans against committing sins. And in that community, there are no sacraments. Christianity has been, this is so important. Christianity has been reduced to a moral code. It's a moral code. Violate that code. Step outside of the conformed body of rules, what everybody is expected to do to show you're with Christ. Step outside that, and it's proof that you're among the damned. So we've got this moral code. It's it's no longer the sacraments. There's not a condition of holiness. It's um, sin and the guilt one feels with it, and then what do you do with it? Hester's made to suffer it. (coughs) Dimmesdale conceals it. That's the great tension of the book, and that's where we were, okay? And I wanna summarize the, the last half, but before I go there, that's, that's just a quick review to get us to the last part of the book and what, what happened. I wanna just summarize this quickly. But any questions or, that's just to pick us up again. I know you didn't need this because you remember things better than I do.
3: About
0: if he's a man of God and how does he supposed to forgive himself? What's his? What's the book's answer? Do you know? There's this. I think that's such a good question, Valerie. I'm. I'm. See, I don't want to get there yet because to go there, we're going to a Catholic world. But what? What? The way Hawthorne presents it, and I read those passages. There's that one passage where Dimsdale's It's interesting. Here, Beck. Let me see. But doesn't he figure he's damned then? Wait, at that wait, point? wait. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 hold on. Just hold on. Can you for a second? Um, here, hold on. Oh, where's that passage? Where it's that passage where Dimsdale is described as as uh, practicing the what the old world, the Romans used to do. And it's where it describes him taking all, on all this penance to try to answer his sin, doing everything he can. Um, and, it's, and in some sense, it's futile because it leaves him with these fantasies and these hallucinations. I can't remember the chapter. Um, but it, it's, it's Hawthorne describing him reverting to the ways of Rome as if penance could do any good, because it goes right to your question. Um, oh here, page 120 look in the middle of the page his inward trouble drove him into practices more in accordance with the old corrupted faith of Rome than with the better, with the better light of the church in which he'd been born and raised, so he's undergoing penance, it, it drives him more inward, he becomes more introspective, more despairing I mean if, 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 if God's not around what do you do? I mean it's, to me it's one of the troubling questions of the whole world. 121, and he himself, insofar as he shows himself in a false light, becomes a shadow, or indeed ceases to exist the only truth that continued to give Mr. Dimmesdale a real existence on this earth was the anguish in his inmost soul. He has to bear it. Hester, this is really going to the climax where we're going. Hester's got to bear it, and it seems to me the whole drama is moving to that point where the two of them come together and how they answer exactly that question. Any other, just brief questions i want to, i want to go to the i want to summarize the book and then get to the questions about the end about Dimsdale's confession and how we look at it and what what goes on there okay see if i can summarize this really quickly um, in chapter 17 the pastor and his parishioner remember that hester becomes aware that Dimsdale is looking worse and worse, and she's feeling guilty that she kept from him um, what Chillingworth's intent was, because she knows that Chillingworth is rooming with him and, and assuming that it, um, what Dimsdale is suffering from is whatever it is that Chillingworth is doing. And she wants to confess to him, so she knows he's coming back from a, um, a meeting and meets him, waits in the forest for him in 17, When the two of them come together, it's really lovely. Hester asks forgiveness and says, and this is going to the point I made earlier, Ask forgiveness because she sinned, but Chillingworth's sin was greater because, in the quote, he violated the sanctity of the human heart by going after Dimmesdale. Um, Um... dimsdale first says he won't forgive her that's funny if you remember the scene i mean (laughs) he's the one who's been hiding all along she's had to bear the sin she confesses that she didn't tell the truth and now she's ashamed she says i should i should have told the truth then because she's seen the effect of what happens by not telling the truth and um um, he says he won't forgive her and then he does and it said that their sin had a consecration of its own that there seemed to be something good in it, uh, because at least it was a lot between them. You know. Look at page 166. Um, the two of them are in the forest. This is, it, you can imagine the respite, the relief. For seven years, both of them have lived with this torment. Neither one of them has been allowed to be who they really are. She wears the sin, but so often in a spirit of pride and defiance. He conceals, so nobody knows who he is. Nobody really knows who she is, except they know she's a sinner. I mean, they don't know her at all, really. But everybody's quick to condemn her. Um, The two come, and for the first time in seven years, they can rest. (laughs) It's like they make a place for their sins. You know, they, they don't have to bear the burden of these condemnations anymore. Um, So it's a moment of relief, Um, 166. This goes to so many of the questions that you have, the one that Valerie just asked a minute ago, and be the stern and sad truth spoken that the breach which guilt has once made in the human soul is never in this mortal state repaired. That same sentiment is going to be repaired. I mean repeated at the end. this whole question forgive I mean what happened? what do you do with it? No. Um, um, on page 167 um, Dimsdale says, "Do I feel joy again? cried he wondering himself, methought the germ of it was dead in me, O Hester thou art my better angel, I seem to have flung myself six sin stained and s- sorrow blackened down upon these forest leaves. Go down, so speaking, she undid the clasp that fastened the scarlet letter and taking it from her bosom threw it a distance among the withered leaves. The mystic token alighted on the hither verge of the stream. With a hand's breadth farther flight it would have fallen into the water and have given the little brook another woe to carry on. Go down, oh exquisite relief, she had not known the weight until she felt the freedom By another impulse, she took off the formal cap that confined her hair, and down it fell upon her shoulder. In some ways, it's like a reenactment of the original sin. They're not going to make love here, but you can feel that it's, in some ways, it's almost consummated again. She takes off her, her hair, falls down dark and rich with it, once a shadow and a light in its abundance, and imparting the charm of softness to her features. There played around her mouth and beamed out of her eyes a radiant and tender smile. When's the last time happen that happened in her life? It seemed gushing from the very heart of womanhood. A crimson flush was glowing on her cheek that had been so long pale. Her sex, her youth, the whole richness of her beauty came back from what men call irrevocable past and clustered themselves with a maiden hope and a happiness before unknown. Go down, or just a few lines. All at once, as with a sudden smile of heaven, forth burst the sunshine, pouring a very flood into the obscure forest, gladdening each green leaf, transmuting the yellow fallen ones to gold, and gleaming adown the great trunks of the solemn trees. It's as if nature approves. It's, um, it's a touch. I mean, for seven years they've been unrelieved in their burden. She takes it off and the sun comes out. Nature approves. Now I say that I think feeling what most of us feel that we're glad for the moment, except it raises this question: nature proves, but how do we look at nature in this world? What is nature? Hmm? Purity. Mm-hmm. No. Just the opposite. It's unredeemed state. It's unchristian. It's 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 what needs to be Christian. Remember that's why they went there to baptize the Indians and. Because nature by itself, we're going to see this in a few minutes, in spades, in a second. The the paradox here, and, and in the next, you know what happens in the next page. It goes to Pearl, and all these animals go to her as if she's one with nature. I hope everybody's seeing the paradox. She's one with nature, and yet, it's clear from everything you write, she's an image of sin. Yeah.
3: Yes, but that would, being one with nature would be an image of grace and archery.
0: No, well, wait, hey, hold on, yeah, wait, right, well, grace perfecting it, yeah, wait, right. wait, leave our, leave. just, in this book, so while this moment is full of radiance and joy, it's paradoxical. Pearl's going to come up, and we, we know this, Pearl's going to come up, she's, we've seen this again and again, she's the image of sin, wherever she goes, the squirrel, the fox, the wolf, there's no threat, no danger, she's at one with nature, okay? Now, what happens when she approaches them and sees the letter off? She goes nuts. Yeah. She keeps pointing to things, furious. I mean, she gets wild. And Dimsdale, <laughs> this Dimsdale, God, this. Somebody wants to shake that man. Um, Dimsdale goes, goes, quieter, quieter. I'm undone by it. <laughs> and Hester finally puts the letter on and pro quiets. But I want you to read that on 173. She's pointing at, the, at Hester's breast because the scarlet letter's off of it now, okay? Because she knows something's wrong. Something's
3: different.
0: Yeah. So Hester has to put it back on. And this is the description of Pearl, 173 at the top. But Pearl, not a whit startled at his mother's threats anymore, mollified by her <laughs> entreaties. Hester couldn't get her to come. Now suddenly burst into a fit of passion, gesticulating gesticulating violently and throwing her small figure into the most extravagant contortions, she accompanied this wild outbreak with piercing shrieks with the woods reverberated on all sides. So that alone as she was in her childish and unreasonable wrath, it seemed as if a hidden multitude were lending her their sympathy and encouragement. like demons. Seen in the brook once more was the shadowy wrath of Pearl's image, that is its multiplying, Girdled with flowers, but stamping its foot, wildly gesticulating, and in the midst of it all, still pointing its small form finger at Hester's bosom. But down, in Pearl's young beauty, as in the wrinkled witch, it had a preternatural effect, pacifier, if thou lovest me. That description of Pearl, if any of you have read any of the stuff on the witch trials, that description of Pearl is exactly the description that the people used as evidence that the women acting like this were witches, out of control. This is Pearl. And you know, Father Hawthorne father, knows, the witch trials are 50 years off. Her, Pearl is gonna grow into them. She'll still be alive when those witch trials take place. And you know that she's often likened to a witch at the end of the story when she goes to the seamen, they call her a little child witch. She says, if you call me again, you call me that word again, I'm going to send a curse on your on your boat. Um,
1: um, your <laughs> but Hawthorne
0: Hawthorne knew this. Is everybody clear? Something's wrong. Okay. Now let me stop here because just I want to I want to go to the end in just a minute. Um, what happens when Dimsdale leaves the forest and goes back to the city? Do y'all remember? Remember, he and he and Esther, for this just this brief interlude, this, um, are allowed to be who they are, without the shame of this community on them. Pearl calls her mother to account; she has to put that letter back on, and she does. And then Dimsdale goes to the city, and you, we know that the two of them have made plans to flee. That's Hester's advice. Right. Hester's, not Dimsdale's. That the answer to this is to leave, to go, to, to go back to old Catholic Europe. Okay. Yeah. What does Dimsdale do when he goes back in the city, and why? <coughs> no. Nope. Either what happens? Um,
3: does he confront? Yeah, physical energy. Well, he had to wait until he finished his big speech.
0: I'm just in the next chapter it it describes the chapter describes Dimsdale in a state of freedom he's a state of freedom and this is this is so crucial to Hawthorne's world so he remember they just experienced this freedom this uplift with the promise now that they can flee it and go off to the old world and get free of this when he goes into the city he meets a deacon he whispers something evil in his ear he sees a maiden and he whispers something evil in her ear, as if he's to tempt Because all these men and women look at him as this holy figure, yeah. and he's whispering these evil things that are tempting. He does it again, and then he finally goes to the shipmen who are, from, who, are, who are on a Spanish ship bound for Spain. I want to come back to that in a second. And he mixes with them because in their company, he can say all these wicked things, right. and nobody's going to see him. What's going on? What is Hawthorne doing?
3: rubbed off on him. (laughs) What does that mean? Well the wickedness from the forest he carried it out.
0: Or exercising himself.
2: uh, He's making it plain that he's not a perfect human being.
0: That the natural man is fallen, depraved. That Going back to the forest taking off the letter was to act as if they could go back and be natural as if grace wasn't needed. And we know how important it is. I mean, this is what we see in doubt. No, Hawthorne can leave no doubts about this. <clears throat> Untrammeled anymore. When he goes back to the city, he's tempting. He's hiding by his, his priestly office. Tempting, insinuating evil. Because once man's left in his free state, he's corrupted. Now, set that against this. When, when Chillingworth went to the cell to meet Esther in the beginning, remember, had that interview, he was described as a good man. And later in the Leach chapter, it describes his history. He was a studious man. He loved studies.
2: Yeah.
0: He, he was a good man. He, he got drawn into his studies. He went off to be with the Indians. Everything about him was good. And in that one chapter that we just went over a few minutes ago, I remember when he's with Dimsdale. He thinks that with his own natural rational powers, he can cure a human soul. When Dimmesdale knows, according to Christian belief, that, that only God can do that. Nobody else can. So Hawthorne has given us two really important images of man when he's left in his natural state. Because once Chillingworth, and he, he know, we know from that interview section, that he has only one purpose in mind, when he talks with Hester, and that's to find out who that man is, and get back at him. So even though he doesn't act on it, what's in his soul is a motive for vengeance. So what we're seeing, is it lines up with Melville, with Ahab, is if man is left to his natural state, from the wounds that he suffers, he wants to get back. And it's in the name of that that it, um, Chillingworth is going to do all that he does. The evil that Is that
1: center around our self? Rationalization. Of, oh, I can do that because it's not
2: that bad. I, I can still get away with it. Yeah, except
0: That's I accurate. would say no, I don't think I don't think there's anything getting away with. I think Chillingworth really believes he's not getting away. He there's a presumption. He he he's, he's a he's a modern rationalist. Mm-hmm. He really believes that if with his studies and his knowledge he'll be able to do this. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but does Dimsdale feel like he can get away with something?
0: So go ahead, Doug. In the what,
3: chapter that you were talking about, does he feel like he can get away with things when he whispers evil things in people's ears? What would, how
0: would you answer that?
3: I don't know that his thinking has gone that
0: far. Yeah, I don't think he's, I don't think he's deliberate. I just think Hawthorne's is showing us that, that if you pretend that you can live on your own without God in your natural state, you're going to give in to these darker impulses. I don't think he's deliberate, I don't think he wants to or get away with it, I just think he's overcome. It's like he's been freed and those instincts are coming out. Hawthorne's showing us that take away grace and act as if you are okay on your own, you're in trouble. We see that in Chillingworth, we see it in Dimsdale. Okay? So let's go to the end. Um, It's election day, it's a new day, Um, A couple of interesting things. I want to turn to page 194 or 5, I'm not sure we'll (coughs) see
2: 198.
0: The town is gathered. Um, It's inauguration day. A new governor um, will take on his role so everything about the chapter suggests a newness. Something's about to happen, and um, it's an amazing. You know, from the chapter that um, there's the, all the people have gathered from the countryside, from the city. Everybody's there. It's a celebration. He's very critical of the Puritan because he said, in in England, people express their joy. There's too great a sternness here. The people are too too dark. Um, Page 188, um, the people are gathering, um, and Dimsdale is going to give this sermon that really seems like a genuine expression of, um, of tongues. That the Holy Spirit has taken over and, and made it possible for him to express things that <laughs> overwhelm people. The whole congregation is in awe. Um, page 198. Madam, I know not of what you speak, answered Hester Print, feeling Mistress Hibbins to be of infirm mind. Um, by the confidence with which she affirmed a personal connection between so many persons, herself among them, and the evil one, <coughs> it's not for me to talk lightly of learned and pious ministers of the word, of the word like the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale, because while everybody in the town looks at Dimsdale as a saint, <coughs> Hibbins has suggested in, in, on a number of occasions that she knows he's not who he appears to be to the public. And Hester's trying to downplay that. Fie, woman, fie, cried the old lady, shaking her finger at Hester, does thou think I've ever been to the forest so many times and have yet no skill there's that forest, <laughs> nature. Um, and yet have no skill to judge who else has been there. Yea, though no leaf of the wild garlands which they wore while they danced be left in their hair. I know thee, Hester, for I behold the token, we may all see it in the sunshine, and it glows like a red flame in the dark. Thou mm-hmm. wearest it openly, so there's no need to question about that. But this minister, let me tell thee, let me tell thee in thine ear, when the black man sees one of his own servants, signed and sealed, so shy of owning to the bond, as is the Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale, he hath a way of ordering matters, so that the mark shall be disclosed in open daylight to the eyes of all the world. What is it that the minister seeks to hide with his hand always over his heart? Now remember, um, the black man, he hath a way of ordering matters, so that the mark shall be disclosed in open daylight to the eyes of the world. What's about to happen? What's going to happen? Why, why is Hawthorne giving these prophetic words to Hibbins here? Because remember remember that we saw in the governor's hall, remember when Hester came out with Pearl and she was overjoyed that she could keep her daughter? And we learned there that if the men had taken her, she would have given in into despair. and she would, she would have given in. And Hibbins knew that. So frequently Hibbins is shown Associated with the forest, the black man, the dark man, and here she's saying, "People don't know Nimsdale, I do, um, but the, this black man has a way of ordering things, um, so they shall be known to the world, and it's about to happen." This is prophetic. Why did Hawthorne do this? Put this prophetic utterance in Hibbins. She's a witch. Or mm-hmm. Well, by, by by the way, I, I don't. I want. I can't claim that. I, I sh- Take that away. Take that away. <laughs> sorry, but I can't claim that. Um, she's accused of being a witch, and in just a couple of years, she will be executed. This is a real person. Arthur is doing everything he can to keep grounding this in history. So he, he does not let us say, this is a romance. This is a romance. This is real. Um, Hibbins is going to be executed as a witch. Why does he put this? He, he knew that. Why does he put this prophetic utterance in, in her? She. <coughs> Jeannie, what do you say?
3: Maybe something to do with
1: that um, to show that Satan knows a lot about humanity and we can use that to trick, trick us or tempt us or. <coughs> and, unmask us. Are you asking why her character is the one who gets to say that?
0: Yeah, why he puts the, this is a prophetic utterance. It comes from Hibbins. Why does he nobody else has done that. She's outside of the
1: circle? The norm of the society. She's an outsider kind of. I don't think all the insiders don't think that. Yeah,
0: they don't see. I mean, they're all blind. They think They think they know, but they don't. Um, Anybody else? Did you
3: have something to talk? um, Christ says, be wise as a serpent. The serpent is is evil, but he sees things that people who think they are virtuous and good and don't see. Yeah. Or refuse to
0: see. Yeah, yeah. If I put those two things together, if I can, for a second. There's a whole platonic cast to this that I, I should have, I should have gone into that with that. But remember in, here, we're going to take up the questions just for a second. We'll do this fast. Remember in Paradise Lost, Milton said Um, that the most important kind of knowledge for man was um, an immediate grasp of essences. was angelic. Remember, he came to Adam, and um, it was Raphael, and then Michael. And we saw the importance of that, because for for Milton, man showed his greatness in having a direct grasp of essences. We talked about that. That was crucial because it was a defining quality for the Protestant world, okay? an act of faith. Aristotle says no. The Catholic world says no. Dante says no. Dante, Aristotle, St. Thomas all of them say, we only come to know essences through our bodies, through what's lowest because it's only through our bodies that we can grasp particular things. A eucalyptus, this eucalyptus, this eucalyptus, a pine tree, a pine tree. So it's through the concrete images that we can get to the essence oak Trenus, bed, human, right? The essence. Is everybody following? We only know essences through particular things. Mm-hmm. To claim that you know essences immediately is to claim to have angelic knowledge because only angels don't have bodies. Only they grasp essences immediately. Mm-hmm. So there was this tendency in Milton, in the Protestant mind, to the body's depraved to circumvent the body, to go around it, and to knowledge in your mind as if, as if your faith would take you to a higher order of realities. Okay? That's platonic. It's not Aristotelian. Is everybody following me? I know that's abstract. Mm-hmm. Is everybody following me? To claim that kind of a knowledge is to look down on our human nature. I did everything in that class on Dante to show Dante was glorifying the body. It's what made Christ took on our body. The greatest thing about us as humans is that we're human, not angels. That, that should be celebrated. What in the modern world celebrates that? Scientific world? Protestant world? Man's depraved. We say he's not depraved. He's wounded. But the body's a glorious thing. It's John Paul, theology of the body. God, out of the center of our church. Um, Plato said, interestingly, in, the, in his dialogue called the Phaedrus, Phaedrus, that there are four kinds of love. <laughs> I can't remember them. Oh, oh. Can't remember the. One of them was sexual. One of them was love. Can't remember. Are you sorry.
2: talking about agape.
0: No, it's the, that's it's, Plato <laughs> said. Sorry, I'm sorry. I shouldn't. Plato says there's four kinds of loves. One of them is madness. Um, the, the arguments going on between this homosexual is trying to convince this young kid to go into bed with him and, and trying to say, love is bad, stay away from it. Socrates finally comes to a point and says, no, love is good. There are four different kinds. One of them is madness. The people who are mad can see things that people who live by conventions cannot. That's why I tried to avoid saying she's a witch. They're going to accuse her of being a witch. I can't say that. I don't think we can. I mean, she's witch-like. Should she have been executed? <clears throat> Another. All I want to point to here is that she sees something, that, even, even though she stands sort of outside that world, that the people in that world cannot see. And it's going it's to happen. It's going to turn out exactly the way she sees that Dimsdale's is going to go up. Anyway, so during this scene, Dimsdale has given this overpowering sermon. Um, it's described in terms of tongues of flame, the Holy Spirit resting on him and everybody overwhelmed by it. And this brings us to the climax of the story, so I want to go there. Here, before we leave this, I want to reinforce this, because I think this is Hawthorne's big problem, or one of the things he had to struggle with as a poet. If you demean the body, and you make faith the guiding rule, there's a grave danger that you put yourself above other people you don't hear, why should you listen? I mean, Ann, had, had, Ann Hutchinson, she wasn't accountable to anybody. Who could reason with her? You know, if, you, if, you, if your first motion is an act of faith, you could be right or wrong. You may, you may be right, you may be wrong. Our church says faith and reason go together because very often the church has to use reason to confirm a faith because people make all sorts of claims for faith that aren't always true. People say they have visions all the time. They don't. So, is everybody following? Faith is a, I mean, it's obviously a difficult thing because it relates us to a higher order. But in the Protestant mind, because it degrades reason, there's no way to check it. You can make all sorts of claims and nobody can argue with you. That's the problem you've got here. All these people think they know other people and what author is making clear is that they really don't. Who are the only ones who know... The, who are the only ones who know Dimsdale and Hester? And the reader. Uh, this is so crucial, because we've been doing this all along. The poets are the ones that help us see that these people make all these claims, they're condemning, they're judging, and they have no clue what they're doing. And the reader, the reader is allowed into that. The question is, how well are we reading? Are we really... God, I'm going back to this, how well do we read? If we get stuck in our world, you know, remember the opening, if you go back to your world and the, uh, the Magi poem, how hard it was to go back to that world. Once you've seen it, how much is any of us encouraged to go back to what's comfortable, what's easy, what's familiar, what's... Okay, um, last scene. Dimsdale comes out and passes by Hector and yeah, I'm sorry Hester and girl and um, um, here over on um, with, I'm just going to read a couple of lines two or four at the top. But throughout it all and through the whole discourse there had been a certain deep, sad undertone of pathos, which could not be interpreted otherwise than as the natural regret of one soon to pass away. He's gone to the depths of his being, and we can feel him reaching his end. And he's he's going to take what life he has left to speak the truth. To a five, there were human beings enough and enough of highly wrought and symphonious feeling to produce that more impressive sound than the organ tones of the blast or the thunder or the roar of the sea. Even that mighty swell of many voices blended into one great voice by the universal impulse which makes likewise one vast heart of the many. Dimmesdale's sermon unifies this community. It's the first time because you know it's divided. Um, yeah. Never from the soil of New England had gone up such a shout, never on New England soil, That stood the man so honored by his mortal brethren as the preacher. And they all, well here, look at the, how fared it with him then? Were there not the brilliant particles of a halo in the air about his head? So etherealized by spirit as he was, and so apotheosized by worshiping a myers, did his footstep in the procession really tread upon the dust of earth? Mm -hmm. They're all looking at him as saint, and they don't know how badly they're misreading. Um... 206 in the middle, he turned towards the scaffold and stretched forth his arm. Cut. I don't know that I'm gonna be able to hold this together here. Hester, he said, <laughs> remember I told you at Berkeley, I read this for the first time and cried at the end of it. And I um, here, 40 years later, he turned towards the scaffold and stretched forth his arm. Hester, he said, Come hither, come, my little pearl. It was a ghastly look with which it regarded them, but there was something at once tender and strangely triumphant in it. The child with a bird-like motion which one of her characteristics flew to him oh and clasped her arms about his knees. Hester Prin, slowly as if impelled by inevitable fate and against her strongest will likewise drew near, but, praised, but paused before she reached him. This instance old Robert, Roger Chillingworth thrust himself through the crowd, or perhaps so dark, disturbed, and evil was, in his look, was his look, he rose up out of some nether region to snatch back his victim from what he sought to do. Because he knows, if Dimda confesses, he loses him. Be that as it might, the old man rushed forward and caught the minister by the arm. Madam Hold, what's your purpose? Wave back that woman. Cast off this child. All should be well. Do not blacken your fame. Ha, tempter, methinks thou art too late, answered the minister. Thy power is not what it was with God's help I will escape only grace is sufficient to answer this moment um, he couldn't be um, more clear 207 first paragraph this wretched and wronged old man is opposing it with all his might with all his own might and the friend fiends come Hester come support me of yonder scaffold he takes her up so remember now he's returning to that point in the middle of the book where he ascended the scaffolding at night Invisible, in the darkness, because he didn't have the courage to confess his sin. Had thou sought the whole earth over, said he, looking darkly to clergyman. there was no one place so secret, no high place, nor lowly place, where thou could have escaped me, save on this very scaffold. Thanks be to him who hath led me hither, answered the minister. Yet he trembled and turned to Hester, with an expression of doubt and anxiety in his eyes, not the less evidently betrayed that there was a feeble smile upon his lips. Is not this better, Mermaid He, than what we dreamed of? Remember, her suggestion was a run. Mm-hmm. And, and Hawthorne makes clear, there's you carry your sins with you. Where are you going to go in the oh, world?
3: Mm-hmm. Like, they go with you. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> so it was futile. And here's the only that it, it, it's finally faced. Is not this better? I know not, I know not. If this is really <clears throat> important now. I know not, I know not. She hurriedly replied, Better, yea, so we may both die, and a little pearl with us. For thee and pearl, be it as God shall order, said the minister, and God is merciful. Let me now do that which with will, do the will which he had made plain before my sight. For Hester, I'm a dying man, so let me haste to take my, now go on over. It's at this point he confesses his sin on 208. I don't want to go through it, but he said, Look at me, I'm, I'm the miserable one and he opens his breast and identifies his breast with the adultery on Hester's. So, it's the first time in the novel that he's confessed his sin, shared with her. And all the people are witness to it. Um, At the bottom of 208, Now, at the death hour he stands up before you, he bids you look again at Hester's scarlet letter, he tells you that. With all its mysterious horror, it is but the shadow of what he began on his own breast, what he bears on his own breast, And that even this, his own red stigma, is no more than the type of what has seared his inmost heart. Because the real sin can't be in that image. It's inside. It's spiritual. Stand any here that questions God's judgment on a sinner? Behold, behold, a dreadful witness of it. Um, And he sinks on the um, scaffolding. And Chillingworth kneels um, helpless to do anything. Middle of two and nine, Pearl kissed his lips. A spell was broken. The great scene of grief in which the wild infant bore a part had developed all her sympathies. And as her tears fell upon her father's cheek, they were the pledge that she would grow up amid human joy and sorrow, (coughs) nor forever do battle with the world, but be a woman in it. Towards her mother, too, Pearl's errand, as a messenger of anguish, was all fulfilled. Hester said the clergyman farewell, Shall we not, here's where I just would like to focus, because I want to point the question here when we're finished. Shall we not spend our mortal life together? Surely, surely, we have ransomed one another with all this woe. Thou look us far into eternity with those bright eyes, then tell me what thou seest. She's saying, we've um, we've redeemed this. The, the suffering, the penance we've done. Um, so she's she's, at this point, feels hopeful that because of his confession, the two... We'll have a life. Hush, hush, Hester. The law we broke, the sin here so awfully revealed, let those alone be thy thoughts. I fear, I fear. It may be that when we forgot our God, when we violated our reverence, each for the other soul, it was thenceforth vain to hope that we could meet hereafter in an everlasting and pure reunion. God knows and he's merciful. He hath proved his mercy most of all in all his afflictions by sending Chillingworth, by bringing me hither to die this death of tri- triumphant ignominy before the people. had either of these agonies been wanting, I have been lost forever. Praise be his name. His will be done. Farewell. He dies on the words, okay? Okay. A couple of questions now. What's your response to... A well, couple of questions. What's your response to this confession that brings the the whole story to its resolution, finally. And does it answer the Puritan problem? Is Hawthorne, is Hawthorne bringing something to this Puritan community that it lacked without this story? I'd like to take a few minutes with him, and then I'd like to go to a Catholic question. But I really want to try to do some justice to this. What's your response to the this climactic scene, the resolution, is... Making this confession public.
3: We don't have the answer because it just you well, we don't know what happens after.
0: Sorry, he dies. Yes, but she we goes. don't we
3: don't know how that the
0: will. community reacted to it and the Oh
3: Yeah. It's kind of like you come to your own. <coughs> Was there
1: a change in their
3: way of living or not? There.
0: And you know that what happens is one of those it's another example of the multiple possibilities that yeah. Yeah. One person says this, one person says this, one said that there was a letter there. And interesting, most of the ministers, most of the men, right. said there was nothing None there. there. Right. It says a lot. Um, so they've multiple interpretations. Reading right, so he's right. leaving
3: it there so you can kind of think... But of I'm asking
0: you, what do you make of this ending? What's your feeling about it? And I still think he confessed,
1: but didn't really... Allow himself to accept
3: forgiveness.
0: You mean by c- because of those words that I just read when he says <laughs> that, that we broke this law? And why do you say that?
1: I mean, he, he finally has to get it out, and he does in public so that everybody knows. Right. And I guess there's a weight lifted, but somehow, I mean, even earlier in the book, whenever he like after the forest meeting he said a couple of things I was gonna mention, but we were moving on to whatever it is. He I think he still doesn't think he deserves to be forgiven even though he confesses. Yeah. And I think that's why he said, You're foolish for thinking that we could have a life after this. But he season. says, Yeah, but God and is merciful. He still Yeah, I mean, God's merciful, <laughs> yeah. but at the same time, I'm not going to give him a chance to show the mercy.
2: <laughs> and I don't think it changed people's minds either. Um, it's really hard to change all these people they've lived through that part. They didn't really keep what they thought at the beginning because this is a Puritan group.
0: Well, some people saw really? it. They acknowledged it. And remember, but that, it's interesting that one woman who had the child in the beginning is, but some people saw the letter. He said, "...thencefore vain in hope that we could meet hereafter in an everlasting, pure reunion." God knows he will be, you know, but... Here, let me put this differently, to, to put this more bluntly. Dimsdale dies. How are you guys all with that? He doesn't have to survive this confession. And by the way, Hester never did either. She's made, she's forced to bear this. We don't—I mean, we we know because Hawthorne t- shows us what's in her heart, and there's a lot of pride in her heart. There's a lot she's defined about. Um, she doesn't make a confession. She said in the beginning she's not going to tell who the—you know—she's not going to mm-hmm. speak the truth. Dimmesdale does, but he dies. What does that say about? Ha- Wait, I'm going to make this claim. You can disagree with it. I think Hawthorne. Is, is enacting a refounding in poetry by making us the reader aware, and even some of the people in the town, because they they believe that the letter was there, and this was the holy man. So some people are going to be affected by it. But but we we're allowed to see that. This is a refounding. He's showing that this black white condition that was the condition with which we began, they just look down on people and condemn them. They lack something in their hearts because the the Oh, the most important thing for Hawthorne is the sympathy of the human heart. Remember what I said with he and, and Melville? This brotherhood of sin. That it's the people, the people who admit their sins are the ones most able to see other, to love other people. The ones who are black-white condemning get in the way of love. There's no connection. They're looking down on people. It's only the people who, who admit they, their faults, their failings who, who can feel something in another person. So what Hawthorne has done is helped us to do that. Mm-hmm. Because through the whole novel, we're made aware of the public, these people who go around condemning and looking down, they're mm-hmm. saved. And we also know how they're hurting, because lots of those women want to go to Hester. Remember, they, they, they can't, uh, but they feel a sympathetic heart in her. So we know that that community is hurting. Hawthorne's the one in his poetry, the literature, who helps us to feel... What they don't. He helps to see more than they see. So, in one sense, you can argue, but I think that's a refounding. But here's my problem Dimsdale doesn't live, he dies on the moment.
2: What's your thoughts about that? Sorry? It would be harder for him if he lived. I know. He just gets the easy way out. (laughs) (laughs) She gets the hard way. Yeah, that's too bad he
3: died too bad why what do you i said it's too bad he died meaning um you know i think hester really for me um the lesson for me was you know she took um she took ownership of what she did she just you know
0: okay here's how much mm -hmm. ownership she she did but here's how much ownership she took i i wish we had more time because there are passages at the end where he's talking about this new prophetess that's going to come and lovely and you know holy and and I keep thinking, it's Mary, it's Mary, it's Mary. There's nobody else like it, but he does. But um, she's the one, first, first of all, she never confesses, one. She bears it, the stigma, but it's partly in a spirit of defiance, in pride. Yeah. And, um, and she's the one who thinks the answer to this is flight. So she, she bears a lot but she never gets to a point of a full admission of of herself so that it gets revealed the way it does for Dimmesdale
2: She She doesn't doesn't implicate Dimmesdale, but do we know if she is sorry for what she did?
3: Not in the...
1: I don't don't think it comes out in the book
3: But it does in the conclusion
0: I, I, I'm not. You point to the passage, Doc. I'm not seeing it.
3: She comes back. Yeah. Nobody forces her. That's She's in not her favor. A, yeah. She's not under the law anymore. That's that would. No, years. I agree
0: with all. I, I admire. Her. Go ahead. He's saying. He's asking whether she ever fully admits it. She comes back to take up the burden freely, which is to her credit. But Carl's question is: Does she ever
2: publicly? Say, look what I did.
0: Or, yeah, confess. She, she doesn't. No, she doesn't. Oh, well, she said no. <laughs> so for her
2: to
3: come back because he's already dead. What?
0: It's easier for her to come back because he's already dead. But why
3: would she but why would she come back she at all? She could have lived yeah. her daughter was an heiress, lots of money.
0: It says she I mean, could have lived
3: it, in it, Europe
2: it, without any hint of this at all. She could have been it's a to, different person. It's me, it, well, because it, she came back and was a counselor. <laughs> Which I was, so that we're not talking about. That's Gina's what she point did. Is that she was. I became
0: a counselor. Yeah, she counselor is. Yeah. Anyway, um, that I think what Hawthorne says is more along the lines of owning it. That that she freely comes back because she knows that was the place where she committed the sin. It was her way of atoning. I mean, yeah. but it's, it's certainly a free picking up of the sin and. Yeah. To her credit. Yeah. I want to get back to this because I want to get to a Catholic question. What's wrong with Dimmesdale's, according to a Catholic world, what's wrong with Dimmesdale's confession? I, I, it, I don't think there's anybody in this room that doesn't feel he's now going to be relieved of that burden. All right. Wait, it. But there's something wrong, and it's not in Hawthorne's world. What's wrong with that confession?
3: Or I'm going to ask
0: it that way. If I, am not sure if I can. Oh,
3: sure. There's penance. He's had penance for seven years, not public, yeah. but Internally.
2: internal. Right.
0: But it, is it? I mean, it.
2: That's just guilt, though.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, it's really true. It's really true. Here, here's the question. Earlier in the novel, before the 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 scaffolding scene in the night, Dimsdale has a moment when he's giving a homily, and he says, "I'm the worst sinner in the world." And Hawthorne's description of it was, he never told a greater falsehood in his life than when he claimed to be a sinner. Do you want me to read it or can you trust me on it? Questions. What's the problem with his confession? Which one? The last one.
3: Seven years too late. I'm not hearing he went that, to God. That he doesn't sorry? really... I'm not hearing he went to God. I'm sorry to read the book. God, yeah. That
0: he doesn't really think it was a sin? No, I think... I, 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 I believe... This is... Here, I'm, I believe that every one of us who reads this is relieved. That, we, that he's sincere. I, I don't think... In, in, I'm, I'm outside... Inside the book for a second. I think all of us feel how crushing this was for him to be the minister, to have borne this sin, finally he can let it go. And on the moment, he dies. In some ways, it's a fulfillment because he finally did what he couldn't do all of his life. And it cost him his life. He dies on the moment. All of us, I think, all of us, I certainly do. It's a relief. In that Protestant world, it's good. It answered. Let me put it differently. What's wrong with that as a precedent for confessing? Put it that way. If that's what you have to do to answer a sin, what's your thought about it? you
3: are not going to do it.
0: Yeah, good, Dave. Flesh that out.
3: Well, I mean, if you, the whole idea of confession is to go there and get it off your back and be, you know,
0: forgiven. And if
3: you're going to be forgiven and die at the same time, you may not want to do that. Especially if you're seventeen.
0: <laughs> no, At 70 and sixty or seventy or eighty. Here, here, on page one twenty. He had striven to put a cheat upon himself by making the avowal of a guilty conscience, but had gained only one other sin and a self-acknowledged shame without the momentary relief of being self-deceived. He had spoken the very truth and transformed it into the veriest falsehood. In Dante, if I can set this up quickly, in Dante, remember, in Purgatory, there were two keys Christ gave Peter. The golden and silver. The golden was the authority to bind and loose because only God can forgive a sin. Only God. It raises this question, is he really forgiven at the end? I mean, it goes to your question. The silver silver key was the wisdom with which...
3: To to know.
0: And to help the person do the penance, to your point, to do the penance, because even if he'd done the penance before, did it work? Did he have any notion that it would be forgiven or... Is he ever relieved from anything from his penance? Not in this world. He says, you and I can't hope to meet.
2: Good.
0: In this world, there is no answer because there's no Christ. It's a moral code. The sacraments are gone. And the irony is he's confessing to a public. Yes, he's finally exposing himself. If that's a precedent for confession, how well is it? How many people are going to... Dimsdale? how many in the early book, he made a confession to the entire congregation. And he never told a greater lie. He said, I'm the worst sinner in the world. Unless you do it with absolute contrition, under the authority of the church, how do you know that you can believe it? And where's God? The priest is acting in persona of Christ. It's a a sacrament. So here's my problem with the ending. And I didn't see this 40 years ago. It is... Overwhelmingly dramatic. It's enormous. If that's what's expected of a confession, how many people will live up to it? How, how, here, this Plato Aristotle thing, how many people can do that? This extraordinary act. Is it down to our human nature? And at least in the Catholic Church with the sacrament, we, I think, we walk out of confession believing. We're forgiven. If we're to die then, we're in a state of forgiveness. There will not be, I don't think we're going to meet you know, forever. So dramatically in terms of the novel, that, that ending to me is emotionally overwhelming. But when I think about the, and I believe that, I believe that Hawthorne's doing a refounding. I mean, that's by reading of the book. I think all the evidence supports that. But when I look at the theology of what's going on, it's, it's a serious question whether he finally ever answered the problem he took up. If that's the answer, who can do it? Mm-hmm. You've got this heroic act. It's so extraordinary. The grief, the years of keeping it in. Take away see, the sacraments. See and see it it's because
2: he doesn't ask for forgiveness with a priest, he
0: can't be forgiven? No, Marcy, it's, it's... So tell
2: me about that. It's, no, it's... What did he need to do then to be here, forgiven? Here's the, here's the question
0: think? that I'm raising. We know when he made that confession earlier from what Hawthorne describes mm. that it was a lie. How, 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 well can, how well can any of us read the human heart when we go to a priest, we do it trying to make a good... I mean, trying to be as good as we can to be honest. But we do it with the understanding that the priest has the authority from Christ to forgive. That's gone here. Moreover, not just the authority, but the wisdom to know the means of answering that sin, the silver key. Because once we leave confession, there's a work of penance to be done. And moreover, here, in the Platonic world, this is stunning to me, in the Platonic world, there's no possibility for love. Because it waits on another world. In a, they all die. I mean, watch the number of movies where the guy dies off. Just I mean, the number Hemingway. I mean, you, they're countless. Whereas, just when people are going to come together in love, one dies. The woman sometimes, usually the man. In Catholicism, the belief is that when you confess, you grow in your awareness of each other's sins, you bear them, and grow in love as you do it. That love is possible here. It's a different world. It's it's interesting to me. He he keeps. He's he and he and Melville hated normative Protestant. They hated it. They unmasked it. Oh wait, but, wait, wait why Spanish ship? Why Spanish ship?
3: Because that's a Catholic. Because it's a Catholic. Yeah. And It's <laughs> as, it's little, as if that. And and he, and he <laughs> this. He describes
0: this woman who's going to be this new woman, holy, meek, you know that's going to change the world, it's not yet to come. I, I, I can't read that. With a, Mary's there. You know, so you, you've got these two extraordinary, I think, prophetic writers in the middle of the 19th century writing at a time when the Protestant world is in crisis. The theology is disappearing. People are still holding on in spirit, but the theology is gone because the theology was in so many ways flawed. They're writing about it, they're fleeing it, where are they going? If this is the answer in confession, which is crucial to this world, and it helps it, and I believe it does, does it answer it? To me, it's so heroic. To me, me, this is my word, it's it's beyond human scale, it's beyond the scale, Christ took on our human nature, asked us to fully accept our body, Mm -hmm. and to try to be perfect. And help us grow in his love. And everything he did, it seems to me, is down to our human scale. Our ordinariness, our weakness, our frailties, our failings, our you know, all of it. That, all of it that takes us to the Eucharist, and all of it that takes us to confession. That every I, my belief in the faith is that every time we go, we, we grow in humility, we become humbler, we become less arrogant, less selfish. We grow. Here this builds, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's an extraordinary novel. I, I, I love it more now than I did 30 years ago, but I'm aware of things now that I was not aware of, you know, 40 years ago. Um, anyway, I just want to leave you all with that. That, that think, I Read the novel on its own terms. See what Hawthorne's doing. I think what he's doing for that community, my own reading, is that it's extraordinary. He's shown us the inner world and the turmoil that other people don't see. But he's left us with this answer, this, you have to confess this guilt because it will become overwhelming. Mm. So it either makes you go back into your community and say, I'm not a sinner, avoid it, or you become crushed by it and then have to do this. So he's looking at a, a, a um, t- to me, what is a painful world of black and white contraries, that are Anyway, any any questions? we
2: do, do you think he's trying to point out the strength
3: that comes from the sacraments? I mean, we we go to confession and, and we receive
0: that strength no. through our sins because that's a part of our life. It's not his. Well, I know, but he's pointing out the what happens. If it's not when there, when you can't convert. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the worst thing
3: that ever happened in the world, such a great thing occurred from it. And, and that's, you know, that's what was supposed to happen with us when we sin. Good things are supposed I mean, we're supposed to confess and get
2: stronger and strengthened by the sacraments. And, it's not Arthur and, Mary. And mend my life.
0: You can even, you, you can go to, he went, by the way, he went to Rome at the end of his life, went to Italy and stayed for you, wrote the Marble Fawn, his, his last novel. He was really attracted to Rome. If you if you read the book, you know, this old world, old corrupted faith, that passage I read. The sacramental world is a different world. It's a very different world. Very, very different. And I, it seems to me everything in Hawthorne is moving towards it. Everything in Melville is moving towards it. I I would call them Catholic in spirit. Because they they're 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 trying to pull away, they're trying to answer these problems in the the world that, out of which they came, and they can't quite. And I think I told you his daughter converted; she became a nun. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think she did that because of her father, because of his influence on her. We do uh, murder in the cathedral.
3: We will be here next week. Okay. We have to bring our daughter
0: back to school next week. Okay. Have a safe trip. Oh, you. you stay away from car accidents. <laughs> 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 because the
3: Trinity yeah. of
0: so I would say read the whole thing, but we'll only do the first. We'll spend a couple of weeks on the first part. It's it's a short work. It's not gonna take. Does anybody
3: need Murder in the Cathedral?
0: If you have another copy, I'll take it.
3: Okay, I'll look and see.
0: I'm sorry, you're looking. He said I'll look yeah. and see. Where?
3: Here. Where?
0: Where? Thank you, I thank will you. see you next week. Oh, forgot! Uh, Don't go off with, here with my that. yes. Sorry. You owe me. I charge. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've have you done the the other? Oh, I haven't All gone right. back to it. No, it? Here? no, I had such trouble that one day. Oh. Oh.
2: I hope that the road's clear. That was so
0: painful. I haven't gone back. The guy that did the, the, light the, light PT, the physical time. therapy yeah. Yeah. said it would probably be a good idea to stay away from it. Is
2: it a lie? supposed to be I think uh, it's hot. I think you should try it without I think
0: I'm, I'm, I'm no ho- ho- I felt yeah. some yeah. relief a couple <laughs> weeks ago when I started doing the physical therapy. And I haven't been good about doing it. Um, I went today to the gym yes. to do my exercises, and
2: I'm hoping working.
0: that I'll get better. And if I do, I'll try to it's lower. Many Many main main access to hey, to um, very much. So this is every Monday. Uh, uh, but we we do it every Monday, and I do it Friday mornings too because it's a the same class. You I know, mean, they're never the same, but there are people who come, come in a day that can't come in the night, and vice versa. So Friday morning. Okay, so we're going to see you again? Good. are we doing that?
2: You'll spend the first couple of weeks on the first half.
0: Um, I, you may go through it faster, but I just, think, I just think
2: the language and the
0: concepts are not easy.
2: I'll practice
0: it's, it's of like reading the Scarlet Letter. It's just right, a different... No, the last time I read this book was like 20 years ago. Did you read it? No, no, no. Yeah, the yeah, Scarlet Letter, yeah. and I, I, just, oh, all I oh, I went over my head. I didn't know 15. Yeah. Yeah. We so. can't read it, <laughs> but none of us read it. We think we read it nicely. Yeah. But I appreciate it very much. Good, good. Glad you're here. Yeah, have a nice day. Okay, see you next week. Is it doing better? Yeah. Yeah, I'll take that to it